Welcome to the How Institute for Societies podcast, How Conversations, where we talk with courageous and authentic leaders about how we can build and nurture a culture of moral leadership throughout society. What does it mean to be a moral leader today? Who has moral authority in our society? What should we expect of our leaders during a crisis? And what are the moral leadership frameworks our leaders are using to navigate through these challenging times? These are just some of the nuanced questions our hosts cover in their discussions with CEOs, military generals, educators, philanthropists, and other leaders about the importance of moral and ethical decision-making. And now, here's the Howe Institute for Society founder and executive chairman and the host for today's podcast, Dove Seidman. Hello, I'm Dove Seidman, and for this episode, I had the pleasure and honor of speaking with Democratic Senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker. Senator Booker has devoted his entire life to public service, from his position of mayor of Newark to becoming New Jersey's first black senator, to then throwing his hat in the ring for president of the United States in 2020. Throughout it all, he has endeavored to lead with compassion, empathy, and humility. Senator Booker spoke passionately about how, especially when there are so many forces out there dividing us and actively dividing us, we are stronger when we come together. Let's start where it all began. You ran for mayor successfully of Newark. Uh, you then became a senator. Consciously and self-consciously, you've lo- you looked in the mirror and saw a leader and somebody that should embrace the responsibility that comes with leadership. Your leadership journey, where does it start? What animates it? What framework do you use to guide it? Let's just start with that personal core of yours. Well, James Baldwin said, children are never good at listening to their elders, but they never fail to imitate them. And my model of leadership was what I saw in my mother and father as I was growing up. And, you know, they were two of the trailblazers of African-Americans in corporate world. Uh, for executives at IBM, and yet they were still very involved in leading organizations, nonprofits. And and so I grew up around this uh, understanding of people that you judge your life not by your personal accomplishments, but by your willingness to do for others. So Senator Booker, um, leadership, in my view, is not about headlines. Uh, we can all read the headlines. We, uh, they invade and we struggle with them uh, day in, day out. Recently, some of the headlines have been challenging from the pandemic to civil unrest to misinformation that is uh, actively dividing us to the ways in which our society is polarized. We grapple with the headlines, but leadership is really about trend lines. Step back with us. What are the large trend lines? Uh, Where are they pointing? And then what framework do you use to head in that towards that horizon? I live in an incredible community. I'm where I'm sitting right now is uh, Newark's Central Ward, which was, when I moved here back in the late 90s, uh, one of the poorest census tracts in New Jersey, uh, where people did not mistake wealth with worth. And when I moved here, I was stunned, uh, even though I had worked in everywhere but by then, from New Haven to East Palo Alto, to actually live in a community, being part of it, and go to bed with gunshots to see the environmental toxins uh, and how they affected families from epidemic lead poisoning to uh, see people who do everything right and play by the rules, 
but yet still find themselves uh, in crisis and not of their own making. And, and so when you talk about trend lines, I, I really do worry that we live in a country where um, we have a deep poverty of empathy and where it's just very difficult for us to understand, as King so eloquently said, that we're all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in one garment of destiny that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And what's aggravating that to me is a lot of very invested organizations that are trying to find ways to further polarize us as a nation and make it even more difficult to find humility and empathy and a lack of, of, of judgment. And the trend that worries me most is that the hate of each other is growing so much more deep in this nation where it makes it even more difficult to be humble before each other, to listen, to try to know, all of which are ingredients necessary to create a more beloved society. And the risks often to get out of that demonization where you otherize another person who's a different political party or a different geography, where the risks to actually reach out and try to build that bridge of understanding and empathy. This world needs the best of who America is, not a divisive a cacophony of, of conflict, but a country that, that can find common ground and stand together for our common values. You said and shared so much, and it's uplifting to hear, and yet doesn't feel so easily graspable. And uh, because we've been divided before, Senator, but I think what you're saying is we're not just divided, we are being actively divided by certain organizations, by forces, by technological forces. What's the leadership playbook? that helps bend towards justice, towards commonality? Well, I think the first thing that I've learned and struggled with is that we all are leaders, that, that we can't just criticize what's going on out there without taking some responsibility in here in our hearts and to say, I am responsible. I'm not to blame necessarily, but that idea that I have to take responsibility and not do what the most common way people kind of give up their powers, not realizing they have it in the first place, that we all are very, very powerful. And so right now, there is a, that we don't need more finger pointing. And I'm not saying to excuse the behaviors of others or not be candid and direct about the injustices, but you should not point a finger until, until you ask yourself, what can I do about this? And, and I have to be honest with you, I, uh, one of my great teachers in my, the arc of my political world was Donald Trump. And I say that because he showed me a great mirror of who I was. And there are times I failed to live up to my own ideals of what it means to lead with love, where I did not rise. And then I was able to see myself at my best. I remember running for president and, and running for a town hall uh, stage, and um, I get stopped at the bottom of the stage, and a man says to me, very enthusiastic, thinking that, again, this Democratic group of people meeting in Iowa, this was a, to give him hell to the Republicans, and he says to me, dude, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face, and I look at him, and I smile, and I go, dude, that's a felony, <laughs> and, and, and we don't need that. Yeah. that. That's darkness trying to fight darkness. Let's, let's change the frequency, and I, and I got up, and I gave a speech about we didn't beat Bull Connor because we brought bigger dogs and bigger fire hoses. These were artists of activism 
who found a way to raise the moral imagination of a country, change the frequency, and inspire so much light and love that it cast out that darkness. And so I saw myself get pulled down, and I saw myself struggle to rise. And that's what we should be thinking every single day if we are to be leaders. Nothing you do happens in a vacuum. What you say is so, it's profound that we're all leaders. And in many ways, the pandemic has underscored that. Yes. Uh, because leadership has always mattered, but the pandemic showed us that it, it matters exponentially more so when we are so existentially threatened. This is a time where everybody can look in the mirror and say, I can lead if the imperative of leadership is social cohesion, high trust, collaboration and cooperation so that we can move together when a pandemic comes and another one will. So how can we get the message across that leadership matters exponentially more, but that everybody has an opportunity, if not an obligation to lead? I think that we all have to be messengers of that. And I, I think of the theologian that said, everywhere I go, I preach the gospel, but only when necessary do I use words. So I just know that the only cure for what, will, what ails our society or inability to come together is the acts of millions of acts of grace, millions of acts of grace. And what is grace but unmerited kindness, decency, and love? I know that I am unworthy of some of the kindnesses that have been demonstrated towards me along my journey, especially in this glorious place called the Central Ward, where even amidst my brokenness, and my inability to manifest the best of myself, people along the way, other leaders, whether they're tenant leaders, nonprofit organizational leaders, or other members of government, extended to me grace, which offered healing and created bonds that didn't exist before. And so the, the first thing I hope that every day, even in the face of an outrageous moment of assault, as opposed to venting on them, we, we extend a period of grace. I'm involved in a big negotiation, and I'm sorry not to be more specific, but I had an interview where somebody asked me about the Republicans, and I didn't fall into that trap. And I talked about painting with a broad brush, whether it's police or Republicans or what have you. And there was another member of Congress who saw that, uh, not somebody that I necessarily am in accord with all the time, but told me what that meant to them to hear me stop in a moment where it's been so easy to fall into the continued rhetoric here, but to show the humanity of people that are of a different party or a different organization. We need millions and millions of those moments where we stop and lead with love, uh, even if the, we somehow believe the person isn't deserving of it, even though I believe we all deserve grace and love and decency. Did you know that 86% of employees believe there is an urgent need for moral leadership in the workplace? And 77% of employees believe that moral leadership can be learned. The Howe Institute is proud to offer the Next Gen Fellowship for Moral Leadership, designed to help emerging leaders also be moral leaders. Learn how your organization can join the fellowship by visiting our website, thehowinstitute.org. You know, you came to the Senate with a unique and deep commitment to bipartisanship that you were really going to try with the criminal justice reform and, and the first step legislation. That was a bipartisan achievement. I've seen you get pulled towards partisanship. But what I'm seeing as part of your leadership playbook is that you interrogate yourself. How am I doing? Am I off mission? 
So I think one of the fundamental problems or challenges of the 21st century is you can't imagine a world without formal authority. We need presidents, senators, head football coaches, principals, CEOs. We need these positions of formal authority. But the world really works when individuals with moral authority occupy positions of formal authority. Two questions. What is the state of that equation? Do we really have moral leaders with moral authority in positions of formal authority where we need them most? And uh, to the extent we don't, what's the playbook of building moral authority uh, and having that accorded to you so that when you have power and you're in charge, you could lead with a moral core uh, and towards higher ethical standards? So again, I, I feel uncomfortable giving a prescription when I am no specialist or doctor. I, I just know my own journey and, and I know what times I've slipped. I know times I've gotten it right. And it's often unexpected. Like I talk to people about Senator Inhofe, who is somebody that could often trigger people on my side of the aisle, very conservative senator. But I made a decision, as, as you said, to come to the Senate and want to try to find ways to build connection across the aisle to get things done. And I remember walking into his office for a Bible study. And my implicit biases, we all have them, was that I, I was stunned, surprised, I have to say, to see him on his mantle in his hideaway office, a, a picture of him and a black girl. And I asked him who it was, and it turned out to be his adopted daughter. And with a very moving story that was a part of that. And getting that understanding led months and months later to me going to him to partner on an amendment to a big bill when they were not taking amendments about foster children or homeless children. And we bonded over that and we got that amendment done that's now part of the law of the land. And it was a, it was a lesson for me to learn that I cannot put the totality of an individual in a box. I, I have to give them space for growth or for me space to have a deeper understanding of the nuances of their being. I have to give everyone pathways to redemption because Lord knows I've needed people to open up pathways for myself. And so I, I don't have any great prescription other than trying to, as a leader, to be open with my own imperfections, with my own struggles, and hope that my travails can instruct and inform other people in their struggles to, to live up to, to the moment that we're in. Well, and that's just a beautiful way of saying humility. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm stunned at times to live in a time in society where even admitting you're wrong is a political liability or that you've evolved on an issue uh, is, a, is a political liability. And I want to be someone that takes more risks in the name of, of love or humility or kindness or grace. You know, we've, we've spoken broadly about our society, acknowledging that we live in a democratic system. Our economic system is that of capitalism. And I know that you're on the Senate Committee of Entrepreneurship and Business. What's the state of, you know, and think of the magic and the marvelous innovations and creations that uh, are part of our lives, that especially the U.S. capitalistic system has catalyzed and responsible for. Think of how the tide has gone higher and lifted so many boats. And at the same time, capitalism itself, our, our economic system, is being questioned. Is it inclusive sufficiently? Have its hard edges been smoothed out enough for it to work? What's the state of, of capitalism, of business today? So I'm a, I'm a devotee of free market capitalism and will defend that system. 
in the same way that Adam Smith wrote about it. Remember, he was a philosopher about what is the best ways. Yeah. He, was a moral, he was a moral philosopher, not just a philosopher. He was the chairman of the moral philosophy department at Glasgow University. He I'm so a- happy you said it. His essay on moral sentiments about the obligations of capitalism. So I, I'm going to just say this, and it might trigger some people, but I think what we have now is a perversion of the ideals of capitalism, and it's changed dramatically. Uh, since the early 1980s. Capitalism today is not the capitalism that my father experienced. And whether it's the fact that businesses had a different set of constituents and obligations, you have American Airlines raising the salaries of their flight attendants and some guy in Wall Street who looks at the ratings of their stock downgraded their ratings because they said, how could this person give raises to their flight attendants? And so now we have people that are so concerned about their quarterly reporting, this short-termism, very different than the capitalism of the past, where people were looking towards long-term growth, what is real value that I'm creating. But now you have this warped system where I got applause. I've seen speeches of CEOs all around this country applauding this idea that they know. In fact, we looked at a study that uh, over 80% of COOs say that we've made decisions against the long-term interest of our company in order to meet these quarterly reports. So all through our society right now, we're seeing perversions of capitalism that my father's generation would have been stunned to see what was going on. So I, I wanna see more of a free market. I wanna see more competition. I wanna see more fair competition. I want government to stop with their subsidies, picking winners and losers and undermining the free market. I want products to reflect their true costs and not the values they might win, whether it's oil companies or others, win through government subsidies. At the core of your leadership is grace, as you say, and humility and love. But we both know that a leader is also a dealer in hope and pervades hope, uh, especially at a time where people, some might be bereft of hope. What gives you hope? What can you say to inspire more hope? I think it would be really appropriate to end on that note. I'm moved by the question. and. And I have to say the people, what gives me hope are the people that have every reason to surrender to cynicism or to delve into despair, and yet they choose hope. As one woman who lived up the street taught me uh, through her own example, that hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. And, and so I'm going to try to live up to that example and always be an agent of hope and light, even in the most despairing and dark times. Oh. What a beautiful sentiment and conviction uh, and leadership imperative for you that others can embrace. Is there anything else you'd like to just impart or share? I will just say thank you to this incredible institute. We're all rushed and so busy that we never stop for a second and reflect as we should on what are the moral foundations of this country. We, We began a nation with these imperfect geniuses who came together, and even though they're flaws, they put into the world ideals, the highest heights of humanity that have shaped the planet Earth. And I love the Declaration of Independence, and I'll end with that. It ends with one of my favorite sentences in all of American society, because they knew they were declaring independence, but they knew of the power of the interdependence and and how much we need each other and rely on each other. And they said, basically, we're going to make it as a, this young fledgling idea of a nation, if this great American experiment is going to make it, we must, and the quote, mutually pledge, pledge to each other, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. 
you all are folks that really get into this idea of sacred honor. And what is that? What is the fiber of this nation? What is the connective tissue of this country? We may think we're divided, but we are a part of one body politic. And, and your institute forces us to slow down, to reflect, and to affirm that connection, that sinew, uh, that very fabric of America. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Senator Cory Booker. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our partners, Levi Strauss & Company, MasterCard, and the Ford Foundation. If you like conversations like this one, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing them. It would mean a lot to us. The Howe Institute for Society seeks to build and nurture a culture of moral leadership, principled decision-making, and values-based behavior to elevate humanity. To learn more about our work, please visit our website, thehowinstitute.org, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at The Howe Institute.